We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to PerpetualChessPod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Adult Improver edition of Perpetual Chess. For those who are new to this format, every five or six weeks, I try to catch up with a non-chess professional, an enthusiastic amateur. Often they are working hard to improve their games, although not always. It's certainly true in this case. And I will introduce our guest in a minute, but I did want to mention a couple things first. Number one, if you're not already subscribed to my free newsletter, the Perpetual Chess Link Fest, be sure to subscribe to it. Not only do I have stories about whatever elite tournaments went on in the previous week, and this comes out every Friday, but also whenever I find like good blog posts, either reviewing books or people discussing their own chess journeys, I include those as well. So go to benjohnson.sub.com 
stack.com or Google Perpetual Chess Link Fest and please sign up for it if you're interested. Number two, I did want to give a quick shout out to Patreon subs of Perpetual Chess. They are a vital part of what enables me to keep this podcast going. Uh, and in return for their generosity, they are able to, in some cases, join the Discord community, send in questions to guests. Um, Join Q&As with some prominent uh, title players and adult improvers who give lectures and uh, even receive access to ad-free perpetual chess. So shout out to the most recent subs, Chris Smith, John Farnsworth, and Rick Mogstad. I also, in this special occasion... Uh, We recently passed the five-year sub-anniversary for the very first people who subscribed to Help Perpetual Chess. At that time, that was the only source of income for the pod. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to keep it going. So these people always... um, you know, I always um, am grateful for their early and consistent support. So just wanted to give a quick shout out by name to the OGs of the Perpetual Chess support. Uh, Tyron Price, Paul Sweeney, Peter Newhall, Chris Wainscott, Tim Seymour, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Adrian Gutierrez, Ricky Grijalva, Nate Solon, Henry Yu, Matthew Tedesco, Daniel Tennant, Zhao Cheng, Grandmaster Pascal Charbonneau, Jen Shahadi, Greg Shahadi, uh, National Master Todd Bryant, uh, Tatyav Abrahamian, Timothy Ha, Kostya Kovutsky, and James Banastia. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it, everyone. Now, let's tell you about our guest. We got a great guest coming your way. Uh, he is the founder of a baseball performance company called Driveline Baseball. So uh, I'm a sports fan, so I've been a fan of this guy's work. He's built this this uh, very successful organization from the ground up, started with just him writing a blog, and now he's got 50 people working for him and working with professional athletes. But don't worry, despite my, <laughs> despite my enthusiasm for sports, this is a chess-focused conversation. Um, so our guest founded this organization, Driveline Baseball, but he's also been blogging about chess. Uh, so he's a dad, and it turns out he was introduced to chess uh, through his sports connections, or at least he his enthusiasm was greatly heightened through his sports connections, as you will hear him say. And now he's spending about 10 hours a week on his game. Um, he's been blogging about it. He's playing tournaments, um, getting lessons. So just doing the whole nine, despite a very busy and successful professional career. Um, we share some other things in common. Uh, both my guests, uh, Kyle Bodie and I are former poker professionals. Um, he, he, unlike me, was a serious Magic the Gathering player as well. For those not familiar with that strategy game, you will hear him discuss it. And I did just want to let you all know, don't, as I said, we, the conversation sticks to chess uh, for the, you know, primarily for the first 45, 50 minutes. And only then do we uh, meander into a couple other topics. But uh, very fun and informative conversation coming your way with the founder of Driveline Baseball, Kyle Bodie. So let's get you to the interview with Kyle. So what's your uh, chess origin story? I know you had one as a kid and then one as an adult. So let's get them to uh, set the stage. Yeah, I played a lot. Uh, Not a lot, but a bunch as a kid. My father taught me at a young age. Uh, He was a club player. And I played a little bit in inner city Cleveland, like Eastside Action, in a couple places. and really kind of gave it up through high, like after high school. I played in the chess club in high school, no USCF events or anything like that, just playing around Ohio. Uh, and then never very seriously. At that time, I kind of found Magic the Gathering, which was my prime strategy outlet, which then led to me, you know, gambling. Um, and then as an adult, basically, I picked it back up 
a lot like a lot of people around the pandemic, but not for the same reasons. I had gone to spring training in 2020. I had started to watch just some chess streamers I thought it was entertaining. And then when I was at spring training, you know, people like Amir Garrett and Joey Votto, Wade, uh, Wade Miley, uh, TJ Antone kind of got me into playing again because they all played. And so when then Joey found out that uh, I wanted to play and that I was interested in playing him at the complex pretty regularly, uh, he actually ended up getting me a couple lessons with uh, Eric Hansen, who's his coach, because uh, they're both from Calgary. And uh, it was that, that kind of you know set it off. So then when we missed the whole year due to the pandemic in the minor leagues, I figured, you know, I'm going to study and actually play a bunch. And it was a way to stay connected with the players of the Reds and uh, really kind of stuck from ever, ever since then. Yeah, it's amazing to get the inside scoop because, of course, you know, as we record this on uh, October 24th, about 10 days ago, the New York Times had a big article about chess enthusiasts in the NFL. And I, I as a, you know, diehard baseball fan, knew about Joey Votto and Amir Garrett's enthusiasm for chess. But it's amazing to hear this sort of inside perspective. But um, so you you got into chess. I mean, you really got into it by watching Twitch streamers. Um, and then obviously, as you say, you had the sort of IRL outreach uh, in the Reds clubhouse. Um, which online personalities had had piqued your interest prior to that, Kyle? Uh more of the the analytical i mean obviously like a lot of people i think you enjoy watching title tuesday you know and see that and mm -hmm. then um i think really what it was was watching a lot of the naraditsky speed runs i do a lot i do really well with very structured like lessons or structured plans so naraditsky's content was always it still is you know really interesting to me um i would say that was probably the biggest one for sure but then there's like international master like alex benzia is pretty who i've also taken lessons with has also been really helpful people that are showing kind of progression from the bottom to the top. And then the last, of course, is John Bartholomew's kind of like those rating brackets videos has been really helpful. Yeah, the legend himself, John's, John, I've recommended his videos and that the, that series in particular, uh, Climbing the Rating Ladder, I think he calls it, um, so many so many times uh, in the past. Um, and what's the vibe like amongst the players you learn from in the Reds clubhouse? Like, uh, because obviously you're a professional athlete, your time is limited. It's probably a bit of escapism to play chess, but are they like working on their games also? And if so, did, did they share any advice for you, Kyle? Not, not really. It's actually really frustrating because when I would play, like when I started playing, I was awful and then I've gotten a lot better. And then now that I've kind of surpassed a lot of the players, they find it very funny. They're just like, oh, you know, what are you doing? I was like, well, you know, just every morning you spend 30 minutes studying because like how we train for baseball is, yeah, I just thought like, I play. I, I started playing a ton of games, and I kind of took a step back. I'm like, this can't be the best way to get better because we don't in baseball like the best way to get better. You don't play a ton of games. Like you practice, you have structured practice, and you have very specific targeted stuff. So I was like, this has to be. There's probably a better way to start with chess. And so I explained that. I'm like, look, the same stuff we do for baseball and how we drill and the unorthodox way that driveline has brought teaching to baseball also applies to chess and they're like ah no no i'm too busy i gotta you know they, they just don't study like that they just play a ton of games hit their kind of threshold and then they just stay there forever like it's just like i'm like you know <laughs> you like go into the gym and bench 225 every single day you're never going to bench more than 225 it just like can't get through to them so for whatever reason there's they just don't, they're not big on studying for chess they just play it's funny yeah i mean i i can't say i blame them and the other thing is like you know Obviously, you have to study in some capacity to get better at chess, but but I do think that some people don't don't like they don't give enough credit to the fact that you can get better from playing. But as as you well know, Kyle, from uh, having read your blog post about chess, like 
it only helps if you review the game like that even if that's the the study that you're doing rather than like grinding tactics like um you have to do something other than just play for the most part yeah i've had to break a lot of bad habits myself too you know it's it's interesting coming up with engines as i'm sure people know you know like it's just so such a foreign concept that i think people who are masters are at the 1800 level and up in chess you know, it's like accepted, right? Like, don't use the engine until you do the analysis. But if you're someone like me or someone new, right, you're just like, well, I could just push this button and have the book open up with all the answers. Like, why wouldn't that be the best thing? It just makes intuitive sense that having all the answers are best, you know, right away. But, but we obviously know that that's not the case. So it's very hard to, like, find the right advice on how to move forward, you know, because I was really hampered in the first six months of taking this seriously, just way overusing the engine until Eric... Hansen basically had to like break me of this this idea. And he's just like you're not learning anything, you know. Um, so that that took some time. Yeah, and and that's another one where there is mixed advice. But yeah, I mean, certainly if you you have to understand the why of what the engine is telling you when you go over the game. And I think for newer players, that's that's the challenge. So uh, of course, from an AI perspective, there are companies working on uh, bringing language with the engine. And I think that if there were language with the engine explaining why something was a mistake, um, you know you're on the right path but certainly it can be a it can be a crutch that that one has to look out for um so kyle you said 30 minutes a day before you start your work day which uh, i mean again given given all that you have going on is is quite admirable um so what are you doing in those 30 minutes yeah i try, I try to get by three to five days 30 minutes or so um i don't usually play games eventually sometimes i will uh but typically i'm like loading up aim chess uh going through my kind of automated recommendations or more recently i've been going through older classical games or rapid time format games where i'm trying to improve on a specific area of my game i used to grind a lot of tactics and puzzles uh i've kind of heard from mark esserman who i talk to a lot about chess we have some weird overlapping issue uh, overlapping interests because he's plays tennis and i know a lot about training the players so he's just like like that's fine he's like but you know, those are really synthetic. So like pulling up games that you've actually played and figuring out the puzzles that contain that are within are probably a better way to go, which I've been doing a lot. So my, my biggest struggle right now is not necessarily the end game. I mean, everyone's in the end game has issues, you know, but me, it's like I play I play D4 openings. So then, you know, you tend to have a quite a bit of a positional game and my middle games tend to I tend to lose ideas in the late middle games. So that's where I'm really focused on right now. We're focusing a lot on late middle game theory and where I can make better positional improvements. Okay. And and Kyle, I mean, of course I've talked to some some other sort of recent converts to chess given the uh increase in popularity in the past few years, but not all of them have gotten into tournaments. Um and you seem like you're you're full fledged and again, being so busy, it's impressive. Um you're full-fledged into tournaments. So how did that come about? I just love competition. I, I love magic, you know, <laughs> and then go into my first tournament was so nerve-wracking. Um, but it reminds me, the tournaments in chess are identical to magic, like how they're laid out, like Swiss formats and st stuff like that. It's exactly the same. I'm sure magic just took it, you know, even to ELO, right? Magic used ELO for a long time. Uh, so it's the exact same idea. So it was very, like, I understood that from that concept. Um, but then chess is so much more intense. You know, I used to play a three-day magic event over the weekends. You play 16 rounds and you're playing for thousands of dollars. And I thought I'd be ready to play chess. And at the Washington Open, I played the three-day section, you know, six rounds, game 120 plus sudden death 40. And I had to take a half point by in the third rounds. And by the sixth round, I was like absolutely gassed. You know, it's like amazing how yeah. much more focus 
chess is than magic, even though you'd think it'd be roughly the same. It's just not, it's not. So I love that aspect of it. Uh, it really just, um, my tournament games, uh, whether it's rapid, classical, or blitz, my accuracy is, you know, and like all that just is significantly higher than it is online. Um, it's one of those things where I think I'm just old school in that way, but I like playing over the board a lot more. Um, I just need to play more. You know, my rating I don't think reflects because when I have beaten people in rapid, I've beaten I think my highest scalp. I think I beat a, I drew a national master and I beat like an 1850 in a rapid. Oh, wow. And he was just asking me like, Oh, like what's your rating? And I'm like, ah, oh, well, <laughs> like <laughs> currently like classical is like nine ten, and he's like, what? You know? And I was like, ah, it's you know. So it's like you have that sense, and we both talked before the podcast about gamers who have that sixth sense for gaming, um, and I think it comes out over the board for me better than it does online because it's just that competitive nature of sitting in a chair playing against someone. I've been in that position for thirty years, you know, twenty five years playing Magic, so that aspect of the game I know I know quite well. Yeah, well said. I, I've I've often said I feel the same way. Like that when I got into tournament poker, like uh, that grinding of just that grounding of just like being willing to sit there and solve problems for as many hours as it takes. Like that for me was the 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 predominant skill I was bringing in from what was already my my chess background. And even now, even though I'm not as competitive as I used to be, when I sit down to play, like you know, it comes back. Um, now, Kyle, before we go further, uh, we probably should have um, done a quick explainer on uh, Magic the Gathering. Um, could, for any listeners who aren't familiar with the game, what's a brief overview of how it works? Uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a collectible card game. You know, you can think about the cross between chess and poker. You know, it's it's if chess is, you know, no hidden information and poker has a ton of hidden information, uh, then Magic is somewhere in between. Right, A deck of 60 cards, you're playing, you know, one on one at the Pro Tour level. And there's elements of chance, but there's elements of deck building. So no different than openings, right, in uh, chess uh, to your strategy, to tactics. Um, and it blends a little bit of hidden information. So it's no surprise that the original collectible card game, you know, Magic, has still gone on strong. It's crazy how, how popular it still is. So it's, it's a very similar idea, and it's why so many Magic players have kind of moved into it. Probably the most successful person that transferred from chess to magic would be international master Sebastian Sifka. So Sifka came okay. from chess. Uh, he was an IM, a very strong IM. Uh, I think he's maybe over 2,500 feet, actually. And he came over to play magic without having played much magic and played one of the more complex decks, like a very complicated deck, and was able to win a pro tour within a few years of playing. So he was able to reach the highest levels. And I think you see a lot of the the same, right? A lot of Magic players, whether it's David Williams to a lot of other Magic pros have kind of made that transition into poker, and they're starting to do that in chess too. So you see a lot of un underrated players who just haven't played enough Magic. So those skills are kind of intertransferable. Yeah, and it's nice to see, the, again, the, the shared interest across the games from uh, from people who, once they get one, once they're into one, they, uh, they get into the other. But um, bringing it back to chess, Kyle, so you... You mentioned earlier the OTB is what really grabs you. Um, so, are you playing games online? Like, how much? If you're like, when you review your games, is it only OTB games? Or are you playing online games that you review as well? I get a lot of crap for it because I play only unrated games online. <laughs> I've been doing that for a better part of a year. There's just part of me that has a real issue playing rated games 
when I know that like I I'm I'm still not where I want to be, you know, in openings and middle game. So I don't really want to. I have a difficulty fixating on my rating, which of course every coach will tell you, don't fixate on your rating, you know. But for decades of doing that magic to make sure that I qualify for certain events and have buys, I can't turn it off. I can't turn off the fact that I got to look at a number, you know, and that it somehow defines my skill, which of course you know it doesn't. But I, I know my limitations, <laughs> so I uh, I know I try to stay away from it. So I do play a bunch of unrated games. Um, I try to play as much rapid as I can. Uh, I have a tendency, like most, to play too much Blitz. Um, so, and then I, I review those games. I try to review a lot of my over-the-board games as well, especially with my opponents. So I have, like, a group of people at the Seattle Chess Club that when I play, I'll, you know, go over to Chess or Chess.com and we'll, we'll trade annotations and go back and forth, which has been uh, tremendously helpful. But I do play online. I probably play 20 to 30 games a week online. Okay. Um, Kyle, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then I've got to file up for you on what you just said. All right. I've been playing a bit of Blitz lately, and whenever I'm active online, it's fun to go to aimchess.com and ask their almighty algorithm to give me some insights from my games. It scrapes the sites, the playing sites automatically and gives you actionable intel. In my case, the real takeaway this time was I got a 7% in resourcefulness in recent games. Um, that's not very good. I need to get better at that. I need to fight harder when I'm losing in a blitz game, look for tricks. And of course, aim chess, as it highlights various aspects of your game, strengths and weaknesses, uh, shows you positions from the game so that you can practice, you can review tactics that you missed, uh, and learn lots and a fun way when you review. So please check out aimchess.com. If you decide to subscribe, use the code perpetual30. You can also use the link in the show description to get the same discount 30% off at aimchess.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back. And Kyle, you mentioned uh, playing some online blitz, which, as you sort of alluded to, lots of coaches will tell you not to do, I think, particularly um, at your level being newer to chess. But I mean, you're also you're a successful guy. You've you've got a lot going on like this is a hobby. So how do you balance sort of all the advice that you inevitably receive about getting better at chess with like the fact that this is not you're not looking for this to be your career? So how do how how do you separate wanting to get better but not necessarily needing to obsess about it? It's tough because uh, it's hard to play a game like chess and just play it for fun. You know, like I really yeah. like love watching the YouTube series of the Hanging Ponds guys stepping right trying to become GM. Yeah, shout out to Stepping. Yeah, yeah. So I was watching on the way here actually in the car. I was listening to it, I should say. And uh, you better, yeah, you better correct that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was uh, watching. Well, he he's, he plays an opening that I play, and so he was going over a lot of like uh, dealing with the accelerated pen off in the Carolcon, which I was like, oh, like I, okay. I actually face this more than I feel like I should in the over the boards. Kids just love playing it. Um, so like just like learning a lot about that, uh, where it's my by far my most booked up opening. Uh, but kids tend to play the accelerated pan off and the exchange a lot, which is surprising to me because um, online no one plays those variants. So uh, that's that's been fun. But it's hard to, to do that. Like I do have goals 
I now that I play chess for two years pretty seriously, quote unquote, you know, I do have long term goals. I have like a long term bet with Joey, kind of a joke, like whoever makes candidate master first owes the other person a lot of money. Um, so uh-huh. I, I do, I can really see myself playing once things calm down at work more and I, and I can really take this as a more serious hobby. I really do see playing all the way up to hopefully like USCF 2000 because, um, so that is, I guess the best way to describe it is that I don't, I don't want to balance it. <laughs> I do find it a little okay. competitive. It's really filled because I don't play poker anymore. You know, I don't bet sports, don't play magic. So having this as my competitive thing, you know, not with no putting no timetable on it, but I do have aspirations of, of becoming a, a lower titled player. Um, and that's going to take me 10 to 15 years. I understand that uh, at the rate that I'm yeah. playing, even if I can ever get there. But that, that would be really interesting. So having that goal in mind has always been, I think, how my brain is wired. And as you know, I think a lot of gamblers and a lot of successful people in strategy games tend to think that way too. Yeah, well said. But um, again, gonna any Joey Votto, that Joey, he refers to, of course, as a future Hall of Fame baseball player, Joey Votto. And again, I'll try to save most of my Joey Votto derailments for later. But earlier you said most of the guys in the the clubhouse didn't seem as uh, interested in improvement, but you did just cop to this bet with him and this uh, shared goal. So is he uh, is he an exception to that? Is he also working on his game? Uh, a little. He, he, I think he would say that he needs to study more as well. He probably plays too much. Okay. Plays. You know, he actually and again, we can talk about the baseball, but he um, in the middle of an interview, you know, he was DHing and someone said, like, oh, this pitcher pitched a really good game. Like, what do you think about it? And he said, actually, I wasn't watching. I was in the clubhouse playing chess. Like, in the middle of the game. Right. In the middle of the game, he's playing on chess, right. chess.com. And then I looked up his history. Yeah, sure enough, he played, like, 10 games. You know? Uh, <laughs> so he does love it. I think it's like, you know, once he's done playing baseball, I think probably much more seriously will play chess, which is cool. Yeah, th- that'll be uh, that'll be interesting to see. Um, now, Kyle, it sounds like you're pretty into openings. Uh, obviously, I've interviewed tons of trainers in addition to like accomplished players, and there's very mixed wisdom about like how much someone at your level should be studying openings. I also, honestly, I should say, based on what you've said, I don't even I don't really know your level. Like, it doesn't sound like like as you say, it doesn't sound like you're 900 USCF. And if you were at that level, I would solidly be saying you should be focusing on opening principles, but basically ignoring everything else. But if you're closer to 1500 strength, it can make some sense to, to, um, to study openings. But in any event, uh, my main question is like, is the extent that you expend energy studying openings, is that born primarily based on personal interest? Or do you feel like that you're sort of like optimizing your chess time when you do that? No, definitely personal interest. You know, I recognize that focusing on openings. I was getting a friend into chess and he's like, oh, like, what about openings? And I'm like, well, you know, it's not really that relevant. Just don't hang your pieces, you know? And then right. he's like, but you focus. I was like, well, look, you know, do as I say, not as I do type thing. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. in, in magic, you know, to go back to Magic the Gathering, a critical skill is deck building, like building the decks, uh, optimizing what you bring to the table, which can't be changed when you get there. You know, so it's such a uh, such a critical piece of understanding. And there are people just like chess who are opening theory, people that are like, you know, they're rating technically you know, 2700 best, one of the best opening theorists, right? Hikaru is second right? uh, and so forth, right. like aren't necessarily the best players, right? But they might be the best people at using an engine and developing uh, an opening, right? And the same idea applies in Magic, except that like all players have to be pretty good at building decks. So there is an initial pull when Magic players get into chess to focus on openings because it's like a close parallel to what we see. You know, so that I do know that that's just a thing. So I understand that like my idea of becoming a candidate master or whatever is at odds. You know, I don't think I'm necessarily doing the most efficient thing, but I also do want to have fun. 
Brandon, I do enjoy I do enjoy the theory of openings. I do enjoy the history of openings. It's just like the chess to me is more than getting better at uh, as a rating as a number, but it is also like enjoying my time and just learning a lot about you know a lot about chess history and a lot about chess openings because I do find that really really interesting. Yeah, um, I I think that's it's a good approach. I mean, you can't just be all grinding or else it's like what you know what are you even doing? So you mentioned you're a D four player. Um, sounds like you play the Caro. Um, I believe you play the London to be precise, right? Used, yeah, I used to play the, I play the two, the Knight F3, the two Knight F3 opening, more or less. Although recently I've been uh -huh. playing more of the Verisoft, uh variant. Okay. And, and as a D4 player, you know, most people who are newer to chess, say below 1400 chess.com level, something like that. Like I would say it's probably 80% playing one E4. So what pulled you towards D4, Kyle? Not sure. Probably like a 20% win rate in the Roy Lopez when I first started. <laughs> I figured, you know, like I knew that opening from a kid. So I'm just like, I'll just play that and I'll play the Spanish and just get like absolutely killed. It had nothing to do with the opening, of course. Right. It just, right, you right. know, but, but still you blame it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> ah, just losing. And um, I had never played one D4, just never as a kid. Right. Because it's just like strictly banned, you know, 30 years ago to do anything. Um, and so I just decided to kind of uh, go into that. It was a whole area of chess that I had never really explored or understood. It's like facing a lefty in baseball, a lefty pitcher, which was described to me. And I thought that was a kind of an interesting way to think about it. Um, so now, but I actually have been playing a lot more Italian uh, as well. So I've been playing Italian and Evans Gambit type stuff. I've been as white. Yeah, I've been kind of pushed by okay, one so of my coaches. Both. Yeah, I've been pushed by Mark Esserman, who I talk. Mark's just like you gotta, as you probably know, Mark quote well enough. He's just like you gotta stop playing like these boring openings, and he's like a way to like develop tactical senses to to develop to play like Gambit openings and to really focus. Like you have no choice, right? Because if you play too positionally and too you know boring like you're just going to be down upon he's like so this forces you into a mindset of playing more tactically more aggressively which has been really valuable to me so i've been playing the mora when i can i play the reverse mora against the english and the italian so i, I probably play 30 like percent of my games in e4 and more aggressive openings and the rest are d4 openings of course mr mayhem and the mora is yeah. gonna advise more more tactical openings for you of course. but it does make sense and actually i have to admit i didn't even realize the reverse mora was a thing obviously i i can conceptualize what it is against one c4 but uh it's it's funny how like um in the youtube age you know uh there's like main lines that have nothing to do with the history of chess you know the stafford being obviously a prominent example even the london like because so many prominent content creators have put out such great content about specific openings um it, it's it's sort of a whole new world but yeah i mean i i know that a lot of newer players want open positions because they're more intuitive when you're newer to chess and actually the the reverse mora makes makes some sense to me as like a choice to get an open position, even though of course the engine would uh would sternly admonish anyone who gives up a pawn on the black side, let alone the white side in that situation. Yeah, my friend in the one of the recent quads in Issaquah drew a national drew a national master. He's probably eighteen hundred strength. He's like uh, sixteen fifty USCF. It drew a national master playing the reverse Mora, and the guy was like, "What?" He like I'd like never seen it. And <laughs> You're right. Both of us, you know, like follow a lot of that stuff, uh, which has been. Fun. So, like, what, what kids play a lot, I think, because of YouTube and 1D4, I face the Dutch, like, a lot. Like, probably 30% over the board. It's crazy. Like, if the kid's under right. 13, they play the Dutch. So then I was just looking into what to do, and I was talking to Mark, and he's like, look, if you have to play one, if you're going to play 1D4, you need to play the Staunton Gambit. He's like, you have to, like, yeah. you know, the Dutch. So I've been playing that with a lot of success, which is fun because, like, the kids don't know that, and they automatically take both pawns, right? And the white's actually better. 
right? Which is actually super interesting. So the way that I've described it to one of the kids, I'm like, if you guys are going to play degenerate openings like the Dutch, then I got to, I got to, I got to get to your level. You know, I can't, I can't, yeah, I can't, gotta yeah. Read, yeah, yeah. Right. Couple down. Exactly. <laughs> I got to play E4, you know, two E4. And then they're yeah. just like, Oh, because like they never, they never expect that. So especially, you know, um, with that move. So it's been fun to, the given the take of chess is the beauty of the game, you know, like the, the goal of chess is to get better. And that's not really the case in a lot of other games. So I, I find that really, really awesome and really engaging. Yeah. And it's great. It's great, Kyle, that like you've, you've got this community, both that you, I mean, you obviously you're in a sort of special situation having access to people like, uh, like I am Mark Esserman, um, let alone getting lessons from, from Eric Hansen. Um, but you're also like connected with your community there in Seattle. Um, so do you, are you already playing the same players again and again? Cause that's definitely going to happen if it hasn't yet. Like when you go to OTB, are you getting like repeated battles against the same people? It's uh, you know, I just haven't played enough to say that that, yeah, it definitely has happened. Um, but it hasn't gotten to the point where, uh, it's getting stale or I'm playing the same guy 30 times, you know, now that the chess park is open near me, I live in South Seattle. I've been going to the chess park quite a bit and, and, and seeing a lot of the familiar faces and, uh, it's been good, you know, because the talent there is, is pretty high. So it's been fun to play those guys. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I know, um, Kyle, you're also doing some community outreach, so that's next on the agenda, but first we got to take uh, one more break to hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. Of course, Chessable uses space repetition to help you learn opening sequences, tactical patterns, um, specific end games, whatever it may be that you need to work on on your game. Uh, some of their latest courses include Understanding Chess Openings Part 3 by none other than Big Vladdy, former world champion, Grandmaster Vladimir Kramnik, sharing his lifetime of expertise on uh, how to respond to various E4 possibilities. So be sure to check that out. And they have a, a free preview for Chessable Pro members. So please just remember to make it part of your routine to go to chessable.com and check out uh, all of their new offerings, which are available both for free and for purchase. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Before I resume my conversation with Kyle, it is time for the chess.bomb. Now, in this case, it's actually the chesskid.bomb. Of course, they share the same ownership, but uh, you've pr probably heard me extol the virtues of chesskid previously. My kids like to use it. When I was running a lot of school programs, I would make sure that the kids got accounts, buy them in bulk, and give them uh, to the students so that they have access to videos. They can do puzzles. Uh, they can do interactive lessons. And the kids always love uh, chesskid.com. And in this case, what we wanted to tell you about is a grant program that ChessKid is uh, doing. So any new school who signs up for ChessKid, so whether you're a parent and can you know, start a, an after-school club or if you're an educator, but any new school, they give up to 1,000 kids a year a free premium membership. 
Um, so that's a pretty great offer. We wanted to run this here early in the school year in case anyone wants to get something up and running. Obviously, it is a good way for kids to spend their time when they're at home. So if you're interested, all you have to do is email Renee Bartlett from Chess Kid. Her email address is ranae at chesskid.com and tell them that you're interested in an application for the school grant um, and that you heard them here on the pod. I'll also, of course, put her email address in the description so you can email her. But that's all we wanted you to know about for this uh, for this segment. Again, uh, I've seen how much kids enjoy chess kids. So if you've got if you know someone school age or a school that could use a chess program, this is uh, something to take advantage of. And on that note, that concludes the chess kid dot bomb. Kyle, I find again find it very admirable that that in addition, because again, you're so <laughs> you've got to be busy. But it's not just that you're playing chess, but you're doing stuff within your community to help popularize it and you know try to Im- help people improve their lives through chess. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what it is that you've started doing there? Yeah, there's a. I live in the inner city of South Seattle, uh, and there's a chess park that opened a few blocks from me, and it's awesome because there's a lot of really good juniors that play down here that a lot of them don't even have a USCF rating because they have a state rating or it's low income and Seattle chess clubs can be far away. It's in Northern North Seattle and fees can be a little you know expensive for kids that live in the inner city and are low income and maybe their parents can't take them to all day events, you know? So I play these kids and just get killed by them, you know, and they're playing at a much higher strength than me and yet they don't have ratings. And that can be frustrating because the junior team from the inner city of Seattle actually just won a big state tournament and over three fourths of their team didn't have USCF ratings. So a big focus for me is I got my USCF tournament organizer uh, certification uh, and we bought 12 sets, 12 boards, 12 clocks, and there's an outdoor chess park, but then we also secured some indoor space at a video game arcade near here that we're going to run free or low cost events. And then my company, Driveline Baseball, will be sponsoring uh, quite a bit of USCF membership dues for the younger kids so they can play because they're really great players and it'd be great to have that community around here to develop that strength to play at the national level, hopefully someday. And, you know, selfishly, uh, that these kids continue to play and they get me better too. Yeah. Well, well, that that's awesome. That That's It'll be fun to see how that plays out. Um, and Kyle, I know that, I mean, I don't know how much we can say and we can cut this if we if we need to. But I mean, I guess we could say your professional situation, there might be a change uh, coming, at least possibly. Are you committed to staying in Seattle or is this something you might have to move somewhere else? Yeah, no, it's, I definitely can talk about it. Uh, I, I was the director of pitching for the Reds for two years. I uh, was able to stay in Seattle uh, currently probably be interviewing for a few front office jobs. Uh, we'll see at the AGM, you know, assistant general manager above. Uh, realistically, I'm pretty committed to staying in Seattle. You know, if the right opportunity came about, I could see that I would probably move or have part-time, you know, living situation in another city. Uh, but the reality is that uh, my family is growing up in Seattle. We have family here and uh, it'll always be part of where I'm going to be for sure. Yeah, it's nice these days that uh, even if you end up getting obviously a, a you know um, highly coveted yet demanding job that that there's still a decent chance you can stay where where you have roots. Yeah, yeah, the pandemic has at least given us that with remote work, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. Yeah, and Kyle, I mean, a big part of the success you've had building Driveline has been um, the, I mean, 
inefficiencies that it almost feels trite to call them inefficiencies at this point. And I know that, that you, you've uh, written and said in other interviews that like you came along after sort of like the first wave of like any sort of stats revolution, but nonetheless, uh, a big part of your organization's success is you found, uh, you found things to help people that other organizations weren't doing. Um, and obviously later, I want to talk about those exact things. But right now, from a chess perspective, when you come in it with uh, with uh, the beginner's eyes, uh, give or take, more or less, are there things that, that you notice in the chess world that you're like, why do they do it that way? Uh, not not too many things. You know, I try to be humble. Um, but I have talked to one of my friends is a preeminent AI uh, ML researcher. And he's worked at NVIDIA, you know, worked at Stanford, worked at a lot of really big places doing pretty important work. Uh, and he and I have had a lot of discussions about just the use of engines, kind of as we discussed earlier in the podcast. They're probably, you know, it's great that this generation grows up with engines, but the use of them can be really crippling, as I've seen in my own learning, as I've seen also in kids learning. And uh, there's probably got to be a better way, right? So the ideas of like using like Maya chess and the variants of Leela Chess Zero, I think are really good starting places whereas engines maybe that play more human-like and doing away with sent upon evaluation right and looking more towards win loss and draw and that that was another thing so th this is the one thing i will say um I, I used to be a professional blackjack card counter i guess i still am yeah you know, i don't play anymore but i guess it never really leaves you um and a big part of blackjack card counting systems, no no different than engines, right? We have engines in blackjack card counting that you practice against and against all different blackjack variants, right? You can call them openings, right? There's Spanish 21, there's blackjack switch, there's different blackjack rules. And based on any different rule change, you're going to have different strategies for every single game, including how many decks and the penetration in each deck and so forth, right? It's crazy how many changes there can be to a simple game as blackjack, but no different than chess, right? And so the engines in blackjack are... It's a much easier game to solve. Of course, it's a closed system and there's fewer permutations and so forth. But the blackjack systems not only give you your expected value, right? Your sent upon evaluation or like your, you know, how much your return on uh, investment would be, whether it's positive or negative. It also gives you like for a system, it gives you your playing efficiency. And this is something where I immediately understood that we don't have in chess or had gone away from it and Alpha Zero and Lila Chess Zero, that story, going away from win-loss draw and going towards sent upon evaluation. I think is a big step backwards in a lot of ways because that's not really how humans think, right? Because two positions that are minus three are, can be very, very different, you know? And so an example that I uh, thought about in blackjack, you can have the most complicated system, but if there's player error, right, it's going to be a net negative system. Whereas a more simple system that you have high compliance and high adherence to, it could be a much better system. And I think that's what we lack. We talk about it in chess, people understand that, right? Like this, and Mark Esselman is a great example of that. You know, he, there's a lot of moves he plays that are below average, or, you know, whatever that are not engine approved. But like, if the if the opponent ever makes one mistake in a series of six moves, they get mated, right? And we understand that conceptually, but it would be nice if there was an engine that actually kind of discussed that or like talked about that or gave a playing efficiency rating um, when you're putting pressure on. But there's only one move, right? The concept of only move, only move, only move is only understood subjectively and not necessarily objectively, right? How do we yeah. put people into lines that are more forcing, that give them a higher playing efficiency? So not to talk too much about it, but that's that's one area in blackjack that we have that we just don't have in chess. That's a much, in a, in a rigorous way. 
Yeah, well, it's funny because, I mean, I, I, that's a very high level insight, uh, obviously not surprising given your background, but like generally for a, a chess player um, at your development level, um, it would be unusual to hear that. But people like Fabiano Caruana and Magnus Carlsen, like they're actually, that's sort of what they're doing at the top level where they take these calculated risks, where they're selecting for openings, where they say, okay, I know that white can't really get um, an advantage that's going to lead to wins with best play um, in the main lines. So they're picking lines where uh, there's, as you say, there might be one correct reply, but if they don't know the correct reply, then there are a bunch of um, a bunch of variations where they can get an edge where they feel like they can press. So it's interesting that that's being done for sure at the top level. And I've heard it mentioned at the amateur level. Obviously, I don't know how familiar Kyle you are with like Lee Chess Explorer, where you can filter for rating. To me, like stuff like that is sort of the closest thing. And it's come up before on the podcast where you can um, go through the opening Explorer and say, okay, forget how good. The, is this move like but what actually works you know at at this level and i do think that that's one of the next frontiers that that's that is a good point i have done that manually you know like in lead chess like filter for under 1600 which is going to be most of my opponents then then like right. in the verisoft for the two the knight c3 lines that i play which is objectively you know equal already for black like which ones put a lot of pressure and it's amazing how many positions the most common move is inaccurate you know, which is right. uh, pretty cool to play that. And yeah, I've been kind of forced by coaches to play anti-positional lines because they think it's good for my development. Like such as like playing two knight c3 is obviously anti-positional since you don't have the c4 lever. And they're like, this is good for you. And then I end up losing games a lot, you know, on the queen side where like my position is just terrible or after bishop before like my, my position, it's just, I have no idea how to untangle. But my coaches are like, this is good for you because if you're going to play these types of openings, then this is, you have to figure out how to maneuver your knight better, how to know how to withdraw, how to play much more positionally in this type of situation. I just wish there was a more artificial intelligence and machine learning way to give playing efficiency. Like this move might be not the most accurate, but it reduces the search tree of the opponent to he has to find one move in this situation. He has to find these moves in this situation. And then combined with something like Lee Chess Explorer, something automatic to say, it's more likely than not that the opponent blunders here. It's more likely than not. And this is really critical when you're losing, right? As to how do you save games by, you know, forcing the opponent to make the most accurate decisions where you're, if, if played perfectly, you're going to lose this game. But if you can force your opponent to make single move things rather than trade off all your pieces and be down two pawns, like that's just an easily lost end game. So how do you create the most complications? And I just don't think we're there yet with automated tools, but it would be nice to get there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good insight. Got to find ways to uh, to increase the variance. Um, now, Kyle, I also heard in in an, a baseball related interview you did, you mentioned a lot of sort of the seminal books that have been written about uh, the, you know how how pitchers improve, and obviously you you've written books yourself um, on the topic. So. As a well-read guy, I know you also read books about uh, management, leading organizations. I'm curious if your chess learning is strictly related. Has it, has it primarily been online and video-based, or have you checked out some chess books that you like as well? I uh, love to read. Uh, so I have a couple chess books I've enjoyed. You know, making it making my way still through Mayhem and the Mora, of course. Uh, okay, kind of spoiled yeah. because reading that book is Mark is such a good writer. You know, so when you read it, it's actually enjoyable to read. Yeah, and then some of the other books you read, they're just like, oh, these are like, it's a slog to get through. Yeah, there's a lot of dry ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm reading, you know, How Chess Games Are Won and Lost, which I think is a, is a classic beginning, which was recommended to me by several coaches, which I really enjoy reading. Um, 
you know, Mayhem and the Mora. I go through when my friend who's here, he's probably USCF strength 1650 1700 we would play every work day so five days a week we would go through one of bobby fisher's 60 memorable games and just go through the annotation oh, cool. and play it over the board and talk through it uh which was awesome so we still have that uh so those are the ones that i tend to do but i, I really it's weird because i love reading and everything else and i don't use kindle or ipad i, I buy books it's just my thing um, but when it comes to chess, I've found a lot more success actually watching videos, which is not true about anything else, and just watching them play. And Naroditsky's recent, you know, this is October 2022, his very recent videos on the Verisoft and the Jabava London uh, and the Pilsary Night concepts are, those are openings I play, so that's obviously very attractive to me. But then these hour-long videos are so rich in understanding these positions. I feel like I got much, much better just watching the Pillsbury Night video more than I have and reading any book or any article because just understanding the theory of of that concept has been, has been really massive for my game. Yeah, Naradetsky is just such an amazing teacher in addition to being a wizard yeah. <laughs> over the board. And it's hard from, Kyle, from hearing you talk about all these activities, interfacing with your coaches, reading a couple books, but doing more online stuff. Um, how many hours a day would would you say you're or I mean how many hours a week I guess is a better way of framing it um would you say you're spending on chess in total uh in a good week 10 <laughs> but in you know okay. most weeks probably five five to seven okay yeah. and and you mentioned your goal in terms of uh ultimate level in uh what you'd like to reach uh over the board what about do you have like goals in terms of like how often you're going to get to a tournament it does sound like it's quite helpful that you have this uh vibrant Seattle community that you live in yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to get to the point where I can play every week. Like I play an over-the-board tournament every week. Um, as a guy who played a lot of online poker, as I'm sure you did too, I never yeah. had a lot of love for playing over over the board. You know, in-person chess, whatever. OTP you call poker. It. Yeah, oh. yeah, whatever you want to call it. Actually, I don't. I don't know what to call right. it. Live poker, right? Uh, I, I've brick never... and mortar. They even call brick it. brick and mortar, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. As a guy who moderated two plus two, I should know those terms. But uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, I never really enjoyed playing live poker unless it was mixed games, a lot of like private games. Like I played a lot of, you know, mixed games uh, were somewhat of my specialty. Uh, so I enjoyed that because they're great and, you know, keeping the ecosystem going, I think is an underrated skill. And David Sklansky talked about it 10, 15 years ago, like that you really have to be good at, at keeping a community together. And I was, I was good at that. I really enjoyed it. But overall, like, you know, I, I prefer to play online poker. It was just so much better. I would play with an Xbox controller with scripts, you know, play 40 sit and goes at one time. I just love that wow. part of it. Uh, one of those early, you know, grinders and sit and goes online. Uh, but in chess, I actually just don't like playing online at all. I really don't enjoy it at all. Like I'll play 20, 30 games a week. I don't hate it, but I'd rather play over the board. I'd much rather play over the board. Um, so it's been this kind of interesting mix where my friend who's a candidate master said, he actually has the other opinion about blitz. He's like, you should play a lot of blitz. I said, that's interesting because people disagree. And he said, look, I, when I was growing up and playing at the Marshall chess club, I would never play blitz. You know, no one ever played. He's like, we play classical and analyze. And he's like, look, but yeah, his blitz like not as good. You analyze. He's like, but you could just get like a hundred times more games in. He's like, so it's about a volume thing too. He's like, you need to do both. And I thought that's been really good advice. So I do use online chess to play faster time formats, and over the board, I tend to play more rapid type formats. So I kind of blend it that way. I just can't. I can't. Okay. I can't conceptualize playing like thirty plus ten or something like that online and knowing the entire I, time that someone could be cheating. Like that's just really, yeah. really tough for me to deal with. Uh, yeah. you know, playing a classical game online and having it thrown away because someone's cheating. And like, you're still learning, but like, it's just too difficult for me to like even get over that mental hurdle. 
um, with it. So I just tend to stick to rapid and blitz online. Yeah, I'm the same way. I can't play slow games online. I can play blitz, but yeah. And I have to say, I do disagree with your friend, but only up to a certain level. I think to me, the cutoff is around like 1500, 1600 chess.com slash USCF somewhere around there. I think that what your friend is alluding to, especially for drilling openings, uh, blitz can be quite productive, but I just worry that people might be, uh, it's like, um, it's like if, if you're trying to develop a pitching motion, you know, you want to break things down into components. Um, and I just worry that with newer players, if you're playing blitz, you're not able to sort of break, like break, uh, chess problems, like the problems you're presented in a game down into sizable components when you're playing blitz. I agree. But reasonable people can disagree (laughs) no i played 800 games of bullet and i didn't get any better it was ridiculous the only thing bullet taught me was how to to as narodinsky says it's just like there's two moves that are roughly the same just play one he's like you're just winning way too much so i've been much right well you wrote about that right yeah because you said you're deliberative by nature yeah so i didn't know when i went i'd never played anything slower than game 60 when i went to the washington open and played the feed eight time controls so I was like, okay, I don't know what this is going to be like. And in game 60, I nearly, my flag nearly fell in two games in my first tournament. And I'm like, I, can I even focus on two hours? Will I even use it? And then it turns out that in my second game I played, I won my first game, kind of swindled the guy. Uh, in the second game on move 11 or so, I spent 47 minutes on a move. So it was crazy. Wow. I had a Greek gift sacrifice. I had... Uh, I had a, yeah, the sack the bishop on each six sacrifice. I had a knight sacrifice. I had like a bunch of different things, and every single line I would take to its conclusion, and none of them seemed to work. And so then I just like pushed a pawn at the end of it, and my opponent was just like, "Really? You spent like forty-seven minutes playing C four or whatever, you know?" And uh, that was really fun because, and that was a situation where I was excited to run back to the engine because I'm like, to me, it was like that felt like exactly what I should use an engine for. Like I could sit and stare for two more hours at this, but. I already just spent 47 minutes and I couldn't figure out the sacrifice. Uh, so I showed it to a friend before we looked at an engine. We talked about it. Then I loaded up an engine and it was so cool to like go through the permutations on why it didn't work and to, like to get that right. So I am very deliberative by nature. It turns out that I use too much time, um, but I do enjoy both. It, I've, it turns out that I really enjoy both time time formats. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting idea. I had actually never heard the idea because again, regular listeners will have heard me talk about I'm the same way. I I tend to get into time trouble and um, can be indecisive. And I'd never heard the idea of just play bullet just so that you're used to like making choices, you know, just so that you're used to just having to move. Now, did you feel like that helped you? It did because I I play, you know, there's obviously more variance in quick chess, right? In under 30, game 30 and below. So there's anything can happen. But anyone who plays against me, when I play in the Seattle Hexes, I basically had a winning position versus a national master and drew him. I should have, you know, I just didn't get there. Uh, I've beaten 1800s, I've beaten 1650s, and then everyone's just genuinely shocked. So my ability to play in faster time formats, obviously there's more variance, but my intuitive sense for gaming really shines there. Uh, so it did help me quite a bit. Now I need to get a lot better in classical. Like I need to get quite a bit better at understanding the game more. And I don't think it detracts from my game at all. Uh, you know, on the classical side, I just need to, I need to put in more time in understanding specifically where I'm at middle game, late middle game positions, especially queenless middle games. I've had a lot of difficulty getting, taking advantage of inaccuracies from my opponent and getting into the end game where I, where I do feel very good in, at my level anyway, At, at the lower level. My in-game technique is good. Obviously not at the 1800 level. Do you think that's 
like just a natural, relatively speaking, talent, or is that something you've um, cultivated? No, I just uh, very Russian school of chess, as Nerdits would said. I spent <laughs> a lot of time just understanding the Lucina position, the Fildor position. I drilled oh, wow, tons of John Bartholomew's Endgame course. So into, I have a good intuitive sense of where I should put the king, how to improve the king, even like heading into the endgame. That that is, I spent a ton of time on it. Where I think kids don't have a lot of interest in that, and a big part of like the Lucina position example uh, is that like. Yeah, you know, people build the bridge and do all that, but they don't take the concepts from it. Like they just hope that they get the Lucina right. position, but it's like understanding like why this works and like rook v rook end games, right? You can learn a lot from extrapolation. So like, could I repeat the Lucina position as good as an eight year old who's done it? Probably not. Like, but do I understand like the rook v rook end games, which is what it's really teaching you like better? Probably I do. You know, so like that's that's been a big thing for me. Um, and when I look at like chess vision, uh, not chess vision, but chess monitor, and like I look at my end games where I have like rook v rook or knight first bishop, I like severely outplay my opponents in those symmetrical or slightly asymmetric asymmetrical end games. I'm like winning a lot more than my opponents, which is like a pretty good sign for me. And that's what I care about online is like, can I get to these positions where I'm a pawn up or a pawn down and hold or win uh, in these rook v rook end games? And like to me, like that's what I I care a lot about. And just like the 100 end games you must know or whatever you know the guy like uh he's uh jesus says basically like as long as you know rugby rook end games like that that basically is like a huge percentage of um what you're going to get to in the end game so that's what i study a lot of. yeah definitely wise beyond your rating hearing you talk about uh, <laughs> rook knight nice first bishop and bishop versus knight are the yeah. ones i study the most okay um and i think last chess related question kyle is um so, I mean, you've mentioned a, you played a lot of these tournaments in Seattle and you did mention one was a weekend tournament, but have you been to like the North American Chess Festival or, or any of these big continental chess tournaments yet? Have you have you had the full, <laughs> for better or for worse, American Swiss experience yet of a weekend grinder? No, I'm, I'm excited. I really want to go. Um, I was hoping to get to the World Open. I couldn't. Um, I really want to get to Vegas for a tournament just because it's close and uh, a lot of people from Seattle tend to go to the Vegas tournament. So it ends up being something, but no. I haven't gotten to go. I, I imagine it's going to be a lot like a magic tournament, uh, but I really want to play a nine round tournament and take a maximum of two buys and just play like nine rounds, you know, in five days. And I just really want to see how I'm going to hold up in like the U1600 or whatever, you know, and just see how my mentality holds up in over a nine, nine game span. Good for you. Yeah. And, and I definitely, I, uh, endorse the idea of taking a couple buys. Are you, you're 39 or 40 Kyle? Uh, yeah, I'm 39, 39. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's <laughs> these kids have a lot of energy. So. Oh, it's crazy. It's it's and, it's demoralizing. They play so fast. You know, it's like, dude, you have two, yeah, hours, you have two hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then then they still play well. Does it? And that's another sort of common topic when when I do uh, talk with adult improvers about playing tournaments. Um, does it? Does the predominance of kids at tournaments, which I assume you're you're encountering in Seattle as well, does that bother you at all? Nah, I love it. You know, I really do love playing against kids. Um, Hikaru said on the Lex Friedman podcast, which I thought was good, he said, uh, you know, it's like one of the only sports and maybe the only event where a billionaire and a nine-year-old are on the same footing, right? And then for the billionaires, yeah. world, or, or worse, right, the billionaire is seeking out the nine-year-old and talking. And when you really yeah. think about it, I'm sure there's other ideas, you know, that are like that, but I can't think of any, you know, and that's so cool. So, you know, we're lucky enough to have some of the best, some really good juniors. Megan Lee, of course, is a, a very strong IM. She was leading the U.S. Uh, Women's Championship for a while. Uh, she's from Seattle. So getting to play against her and like watch her play and talk to her, you know, she's not that young for, you know, international master, but she's still young to me. 
Um, and just yeah. hear how like she processes things um, has been awesome. And there's been some national masters that have kind of come out of retirement to give back to the community. Uh, Larry Hedder is a good example. I played this guy, had no idea who he was, ended up losing a pawn down end game. It was a good game, but I was losing the whole time. And then his wife comes up to me and she's like, oh, actually, he's a he's a master. And I said, you know, I thought maybe she was just using the term kind of loosely. And then like Google right. is like, oh, wow, he's like 2369, you know, like right. he's kind of retired, but like still one of the better players in Washington and uh, having him around and talking to him and him teaching kids and then me learning by kind of just being around has been has been awesome. So now the game is the game is for kids, you know, it's for everyone. But realistically, like they're the ones that have the fastest learning rate and just talking to them to try to teach some of them, but also learn a lot about that has been has been great. Okay. Yeah. And Seattle, of course, with the rich chess history where Yasser famously learned and I am John Donaldson. And yeah, there's, there's uh, a lot of history there. All right. Well, Kyle, if you're okay on time, I think we've, we've reached the point where I'm going to derail us to some, some non-chess talk. Are you, are you good to chat a little more? Let's do it. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. And listeners, I mean, we're going to talk some, some poker, some um, sports. So if you're, if you're only in it for the chess, thanks for listening. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, this, this is a uh, unique opportunity for me. Um, and let's start off with, we do have a, a listener question. Patreon supporters of Perpetual Chess are able to send in questions for our guests. And uh, this one is from friend of the pod, um, Peter Newhall, who asks, uh, when you're winning a game and lose by making a one-move blunder like hanging your queen, do you get Miles Dyson mad, Kid Cullen upset, or full ISF? Wow. So, and there's a reference there. So let's see if Kyle gets it. Obviously, he'll have to explain That's it unreal. if he does for listeners. It's unreal. Do you know, do you know the, before I answer, do you know the answer? Do you know, do you know the references? He No, he had to break them down for me. That's incredible. Full ISF. Wow. What a reference. These are two plus two usernames for people that don't know. Which uh, is a poker chat yeah. community we should say yeah yeah a lot of the best players born from there including other yeah you know, there's tons of nba assistant general managers that come from that form i don't know if you know that plus nate silver are all we're right. all we're all uh there and whether it's you know jason strasser to a lot of the best no limit players very funny but miles Dyson and isf and those guys are legends in the health and fitness format uh forum and others for being players uh wow um <laughs> so how mad do I get? Do I get as mad as Magnus Carlsen resigning again or like just throwing a tantrum against Hans? Uh, no, I don't get that mad. That'll be funny. <laughs> if listeners are still around for that, that'll cause some controversy. Um, <laughs> no, I really don't get mad at all, to be quite honest. I mean, like, obviously, I'm disappointed, but um, I, I try to always think about, like, how do I play? Am I playing to the level of my rating like, or where I think I'm at? You know, like, I think I'm probably play at 1,200 to 1,500 strength. Like, so do it, the games that I play, do I play within that band? And then if the answer is yes, then like, I'm more or less happy about that. Like, do I, if I don't care about playing like a 63% accurate game or whatever. So that's, uh, you know, it's kind of a cop out, but that is how I think about it. You know, if I hang my queen and lose, then it is what it is. I lost to like a 700 rated kid in a blitz tournament over the board the other day because I just made an illegal move and he took my king, you know, which is how we play with the USCF rules. If you make an illegal move and blitz, you lose. So, like, that was stupid, but, like, that's also part of the game, right? And uh, I tend not to get too pissed off about it. Um, yeah, the only – I can't think of a single time that I've, like, really thrown a fit in chess. So that's been good to, to think about. Okay, yeah. Great, great references, <laughs> from Peter. I wonder who that person is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it might be PT Smooth because that's what he's using on Ooh. some online forums now, but he Could was be. definitely pretty active and former poker very, pro. Very funny. Uh, who uh, – 
Yeah, it's gonna be very few listeners that get this reference, but the ones that do. Yeah, so, so yeah, so we better uh, keep keep it moving from there. Now, Kyle, you might have um, talked about this before, but another thing unusual about your background is you didn't finish college and then managed to build this massive organization, sort of uh, from from the ground up. This super successful organization, and then coming from a gambling background on top of that. So when you made your way into baseball, was this sort of unusual analytic background was analytic slash, obviously there's a physical realm as well. Was that a hindrance at all? Did, or since it was your own company, were you able to just sort of stand on what you provided? Yeah. Fortunately I was able to stand on just plow through, you know, without a degree. Uh, I dropped out with about a year to go. I'm actually back in school now to finish my undergraduate degree at age 39, (laughs) which is ridiculous. Um, but it's one of those things that I'd like to be able to do and just like tell my kids that I did. Uh, and then I actually have plans of going to grad school after this, which is, you know, probably another bad decision. But uh, what are you going to study? Probably finance or management. Uh, yeah, like looking at applying to Harvard uh, or Georgia Tech. It's like a couple of the schools to finish up since they have online programs now. Yet another reason the pandemic, you know, is given to us, you know, being able to attend a school like Harvard Extension or something and, and go and get a master's degree from there while only needing to be on campus a couple of weeks is pretty attractive. And my ultimate goal is to be a general manager of a baseball team. And I'm kind of fooling myself to think that a dropout could do that, you know, so it's got to yeah. be, yeah. So uh, whether it's right or not, you know, whether it should be that way or not, it doesn't matter. Like if I could just set two years aside and get it done, I should just do it. So, okay. but, you know, to go back to the original question, it, it has hurt in some ways, you know, like I was proud of dropping out, I guess, as anyone can be like to, 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 to do what I did. And I, I stand by the decision to drop out because when I did, I became you know, a professional gambler and I was actually working for poker stars for a while. Um, and that, that made me who I am today, you know, but I can't lie, like not having that degree and some of the advanced education probably would have been really helpful uh, for, for doing what I did, but I'm, I'm a really good self-studier really good at like uh just getting a ton of research papers reading them putting them together deriving things from first principles and that's kind of how i've that's my education currently um but it is no surprise it's no i wouldn't you know i definitely can admit that more formal education i think would have accelerated my career not just from a credential credentialism standpoint but um it would have cut down the learning curve out of a couple things that i had to study especially intense math okay yeah and knowing stuff is is good (laughs) knowing stuff is good (laughs) Yeah. Um, And how, what was your, I mean, obviously you must've been a baseball fan, but like how, how high up did you play baseball? Oh, no level that matters. Let's put it that way. Um, Wow. Yeah. High school, whatever. Still play now, if that counts. (laughs) But uh, no, uh, no level that matters. Yeah. Not, not a gifted baseball player at all. To me, that's even sort of like barnstorming the, you know, analytical world, sports data world, like it's impressive to me, but like barnstorming sort of the physical realm of teaching this performance activity is is almost equally impressive to me. Like, how did you like how did you learn enough to be able to teach, uh, you know, aspiring world class athletes and some who are world class athletes uh, how to do uh, like be better at their craft? Yeah, when you put it that way, I really don't know. <laughs> uh, I started <laughs> off. Coach- at a time, yeah, I, I started coaching yeah. little league. I, you know, my dad was a really good coach. He was, he was a good coach with me. Uh, like, you know, he, he coached me in soccer. I was a really good soccer player and he, he taught me quite a bit. And the way he coached, I took a lot of inspiration from. And yet 
I felt there had to be like if I was going to coach little league when I moved to Seattle, which I did. I moved for a girl. We're married now, so it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I figured I was coach little league and that'd be fun because I was getting into baseball, back into baseball. And I was like, there's got to be a way to like not make kids hurt their arm, you know, because like that's what happened to me at a young age, like had arm injuries. And so not that that excuses my career. It doesn't matter at all, you know, but I just had arm injuries and I was like, you know, that sucks. So can we just like start with that? And it turns out that there was just like no information on that. And so as I continued to research and coach and like learn how to coach and read a lot of books about coaching and I just decided, you know, it looks, it, I got to the realization that if, we're, if someone's going to make a dent on injury, you know, and, and performance on pitching, that it's going to have to be someone that generates first party data and not just reads books. And that was the insight that I came to probably 15 years ago. And so that's when I started to look into building a biomechanics lab you know, when I was 23 years old and move forward from there. So it turns out that when you generate all this knowledge and information that no one else has and you write about it a lot, which is something I've always been good at is writing and putting things down and documenting things that, you know, the Google machine finds it, you know, you find people that find it and you're, you get, you know, the first professional athlete that gave me a chance was Ryan Buckter. He just retired last year. But imagine that. He was 15 years ago. He reached out to me and he just retired this year. So that's been cool. He was the first guy I ever coached as a pro. And then he ended up getting to the big leagues. And then my second, uh, my I don't know if you know this, but my second client also got to the big leagues. And he was a minor leaguer when I was working with him. You know him because he is the pitching coach of the Philadelphia Phillies. Caleb Gotham. Oh, really? Yes. So Caleb Gotham okay. is the pitching coach of the Phillies. Uh, he was re- recently my boss with the Reds, and I had coached him, and he got to the big leagues of the Yankees. And so Caleb was the second guy he ever coached, and it's been downhill ever since. It's kind of my joke. The first two, <laughs> first two guys get to the big leagues. But those guys were so highly analytical and kind of what they felt like at the end of their careers that they would take a chance on this weird guy writing about weighted balls and whatever. And then when success happened for both of them, that really snowballed. you know. And then you saw a lot more buy-in from whether it's to Trevor Bauer or to the college players. And really, I would say the college stuff had much more impact than any of the pro stuff because our, our success with Oregon State really snowballed across amateur and then professional baseball as those guys went on to be successful in the big leagues. Okay. Yeah, just it's I, I can't can't praise it enough. I mean, it's just so impressive to me that you built this whole thing from the ground up and obviously uh, making making a big impact um, at the highest level in the world. You mentioned playing a bunch with players in the Reds organization, which is the organization I had heard where uh, baseball is popular. Did you see it across other clubhouses as well, Kyle? Uh, yeah, it was the Guardians, my hometown team, Cleveland, Ohio. They uh, Stephen Kwan, who played for Oregon State, who's on you know an outfielder mm-hmm. for the Guardians, is a pretty strong player. And there was an article about how they played Max Hayes High School, um, which is an inner city school, but one that's really well known for chess nationally. And they're like, oh, they're going to play. And I was talking to some Reds players, and they're like, oh, do you think they're going to, like, win? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, Quan's probably, like, a 1,300 player, you know? And, like, wow. I think I think there are multiple uh, NMs or FMs on Max Ace High School team. And I'm like, I don't think this is going to go very well. And then, of course, they got 5-0'd. But, you know, like, it's really cool to see that engagement. You know, you have kids that are nerds and chess that get to play against major league players and to know that they're, you know, it's not some kid that's like, you know, there's the player and the Guardians is not rated 400 right like he actually is engaged in chess and talking about principles with a kid that's probably like you know 20 2070 or whatever and it's that'll be informative for both of them you know how cool is it for both of them that Stephen kwan got to play versus a national master and how cool is it that some 15 year old got to play against a major league outfielder <laughs> right well and it's funny because Stephen kwan has this sort of 
somewhat unique profile as a player where he's known for like making contact more than uh, like basically any other major leaguer. And to me, like that sort of suggests a sort of cerebral approach. So if you just said, you know, Ben, like name 10 people who might be chess players without knowing any, any other information, he he's one that would have, uh, would definitely come up. Does I'm gathering, I'm guessing he does take that approach to hitting as well. Yeah. There was a really good article recently about that, where the, basically the guardians front office went to him and said, Hey, you have elite bat to ball skills, elite plate discipline, right? These things are all great. You know, but your bat speed is is below average. So, like, that's an area that you could probably get better in the offseason. And Kwan said, great. And then he's like, how should I do that? And they're like, well, you know, these weighted bats, these weightlifting techniques and so forth. And then he showed up just swinging the bat a lot faster this year. So, like, he just did right. all the weighted bat training, a ton of stuff to, like, swing the bat faster. And, yeah, some of it was for power, right? Like, that's people think bat speed is power, and no doubt it is. But it was more like if you can swing the bat faster and your contact rates all stay the same, like you're going to be able to have much more success and get a wider array of pitches and a wider, you know, you have more time to make decisions. So that, when they explain it to them that way, I'm guessing that's what Quan bought into rather than like you could hit 20 homers someday. And yeah, maybe Quan can, right. But like, that's not the reason that he found increased bat speed to be attractive. Okay. And uh, you mentioned weighted bats, weighted balls were, Correct me if I'm wrong. One of your your first sort of insights for pitcher development is that is that correct? It was, yeah. And there was just a ton of research on it before we even got in the game, but it was being ignored. Mm-hmm. And was it so? But now, I mean, obviously, you've got your own organization, but do you feel like this stuff is pretty much universally adapted now, or is it still more sort of driveline disciples that are doing it? I would say that yeah, it's, it's generally accepted across. Professional baseball, amateur baseball, a little more mixed, uh, you know, for right or wrong, you know, when people are seen throwing weighted baseballs on any field in America, they say, oh, it's driveline, you know, which is like pretty humbling. It's amazing to to know that our brand name is detached, you know, is attached to this thing, whether it's derogatorily or, you know, like in a good way. Uh, that's what they say. Um, I'm very quick to point out that we're not the first ones to think about weighted balls. And in fact, their origins are not in baseball either. They're in track and field, right? They're in shot right. put, hammer, discus, which is where people like Dr. Kupta Ren from Hawaii, like did a lot of the studies. He adapted those studies and then we just took it to a much more um, structured way on how you would actually implement it with a team rather than a sterile research paper, I would say. Okay. Well, amazing, and it'll be it'll be fun to see how things develop over the coming years, both um, with with your own career and uh, and um, with Driveline. Um, and last question, Kyle. Uh, we're recording this before the World Series starts. Two games will have been played when this podcast first comes out. So even though predictions are stupid, I got to get a World Series prediction from you now. Obviously, bear in mind I'm a lifetime Philadelphia Phillies fan, so be very careful here, Kyle. I can be. I can't be deluded, my friend. I mean, the Astros—they're <laughs> just so good. Yeah, they're the tough. better team. You know, it doesn't. You know, anything yeah, can happen really as the Phillies showed. You know, versus, you know, the Padres are probably as good as the Phillies. It's probably like you know equal. Um, but you know, uh, definitely the Phillies were not the better team in the earlier series. But you know, they were better the team when it mattered. Uh, so anything can happen. The Phillies lineup is truly, truly impressive you know to watch and that's the scary thing right and that's the thing just to take it back to Jess, right you make a couple mistakes and you end up down massive right like down 4-0 to the padres win convincingly can only happen when you have a lineup of of people like bryce harper who's you know i think one of the most underrated players in the game 
you know, uh, because we, we see him as like a, a, a good player, an all-star. It's just like kind of crazy that we don't, we don't view him as one of the very best players, not in the game today, but ever, you know, and I think he is, wow. I think he's deserving of that. And I think we're seeing why now, you know, yeah. uh, and, but the Astros dominance is, so hard to ignore you know like they just don't make mistakes when it comes to payroll when it comes to building their club they have very little dead money on their payroll uh how they just every pitcher they have like you know guys that no one's ever heard of until the playoffs you know are just like closing games throwing 100 miles an hour and and they don't have a single pitcher with a below four era on their roster like that that is a crazy crazy tenant you know crazy story of how they built depth you know from the very beginning and i got my start with houston in 2013 so I've got to see how they built it and a lot of the business lessons I learned from there, I took over to driveline. So unfortunately, Houston is the better team. We can definitely say that I got it four two. I got the Phillies getting two games. Um, but anything can happen. That's for sure. You know, I, I would give the Phillies yeah. like 38% chance to win the series. Maybe not that high, but like, you yeah, know, who knows? Close to, close to where the market is. Oh, yeah. I can't argue with that. I can only, argue, I can only come back with the Philly magic. That's going to carry the day. Hey, under pairs um, win all the time, but... man. You've seen it, you know, so, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yep. All right. Well, Kyle, this has been amazing. Again, real treat for me, especially. Um, so um, excited to see, obviously, again, where your professional career goes, but also the, the chess grind. Uh, ho- hopefully you can continue to, uh, you're going to keep up the blog when you play these o- OTB tournaments? I need to do that more. Yeah. A lot of the, my OTB tournaments have been um, kind of like blitzes and hexes and rapids. So I just don't keep full notation, but every classical event I do, I'm definitely going to post a blog. Okay, so I'll link to the blog. I'll link to your Twitter. Is there anything else I should link to? Um, Driveline, perhaps? I don't know. Nah. For any baseball <laughs> dads or moms listening? No, nah, that, that's good. Just kylebody.com slash blog. You know, I'll blog those chess things. And then I always talk about it. You know, I love talking about it on Twitter. So my Twitter is at Driveline Bases. So if people play chess and want to talk, you know, I definitely don't mind doing it on that account. Awesome. All right. Well, Kyle, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. And uh, continued uh, good luck with, um, with, with future endeavors. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Official one on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.